So it will be of no surprise to you that this evening I would like to talk some more about metta. The first teachings about metta are found in one of the earliest collections of the Buddha's discourses called the Sutta Napata. And it is a teaching that is part of that discourse on the boundless, immeasurable friendliness that we've been speaking about today. But this is not the only place it's found in the teachings. In fact, when you look at the teachings, you see that it's a thread that weaves its way through the whole of the path. In fact, the Buddha was very, very clear that we... um, that we cultivate this path in order to cultivate a boundless, immeasurable metta and compassion that alleviates the suffering of all beings. On a level of personal practice, metta is said to be one of the keys, one of the most significant keys that brings suffering to an end and that awakens our heart's capacity for also a boundless and immeasurable freedom. As the Buddha put it, metta ennobles the heart. It leads to awakening. Certainly the more that I practice and teach, the more that I really have a sense how very thin is the membrane that separates metta from all other meditative practices. We could really question um, what is metta without mindfulness? You've probably noticed today that in order for metta to come into being, there first needs to be the foundation of mindfulness. But we could also ask what is mindfulness without metta? that mindfulness is something much more than just you know, having a, a kind of cold attention placed upon things. If we see that the very essence of mindfulness is to turn towards all experience, the very nature of mindfulness is to turn towards the life of the body, the life of the mind, the life of the heart, all of the events that unfold, then the essence of metta is a follow-on from that. How do we befriend that which we turn towards? How do we stay close to? Both are equally concerned with having this relational intimacy, I might say, with the simple truths of each moment. I suspect that in our own lives we can probably see the truth of this, how we really can't understand anyone or anything from a distance that we don't find joy or generosity from a place of being vastly separated and divided, but that we find it through intimacy. We probably have a sense that compassion certainly is not a remote offering. 
And time and time again in our lives and our practice, we're asked to stand near to joy and to sorrow, to heartache and fear. We're asked to stand near to people we love and people we struggle with, to stand next to lovely and to difficult emotions and thoughts and everything that our body can and, of course, will experience in this life. It is, it is this capacity and the willingness to be equally present with all experience and events in our life with a boundless warmth and friendliness and kindness. This is the ground of insight. It's the ground of understanding And it's a deeper sense, the beginning of the liberation of the heart. Perhaps this capacity to be close to all things is the first and most significant step in bringing suffering to an end. The Buddha referred to it as Chetuvamuti, the liberation of the heart and mind through metta, through compassion. Tartan Tuku, he once spoke of this, saying, Loving compassion is like sunlight, awakening and bringing joy to beings. It's beauty like a rainbow, lifting the heart of all that it touches. Now, metta not only has a very direct relation with relationship with mindfulness, with insight and awakening, but it is the base of what is called all of the other Brahma Viharas, the ennobling qualities. If we wish to understand compassion, we need to understand metta. If we wish to really touch upon an inwardly generated joy, First, we need to be able to stand near to all that can touch us. If we wish to understand the unshakable poise and balance that is the nature of equanimity, it begins with understanding what metta is. These qualities, as we mentioned earlier today, are all interwoven. Longchenpa, again a teacher from the Tibetan tradition, even said that out of the soil of friendliness grows the bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Now metta, and I certainly hope you've sort of got a sense of this today, is is not an emotion, it is instead an attitudinal commitment. And it is always relational. It's never described as a state uh, disconnected from other states, but as a way of being present with the waves of thoughts and feelings of people and events that make up our world of the moment. But metta is also a cultivation, a path like any other meditative path that relies upon cultivation, 
just as concentration does, just as serenity does, just as insight does. It is recognizing that there is always something in our minds and in our lives, always something that is being enacted, that is being manifested, and that is being translated into thoughts, words, and actions. All of our views, all of our attitudes are always in this process of being translated into thoughts, words, and actions. Something more than what we just feel. A couple of years ago, I I went to a workshop offered by a group of people called Combatants for Peace. Some of you may have come across this group. It's a group of ex-Palestinian activists and ex-Israeli soldiers. All who had, didn't even necessarily all of them have a common language, but they all had a shared history of conflict and war and violence. And during this evening, many of them stood up and told some of their stories of seeing their families being killed by soldiers. Some of them spoke of killing others. One Palestinian man of 27, he had spent 12 years of his life in Israeli prisons. And they all spoke of the ways in which hatred and mistrust and fear and rage had been part of their lives for as long as they could remember. And even though they didn't share always a common language, they shared a common past. And they all spoke of the turning points in their lives and in their minds when each of them saw in some unshakable way that they didn't want their past to be their future. And they committed themselves to this working together as a group, committed themselves to peacemaking. In the culture and the climate they live in, this was no easy thing. Because they saw, just as we see, the ways in which the waves of the past arise again and again in the present, in our memories. The stories of hurt, the stories of resentment, the reactions. And the invitation of Metta for us is to know how to stand, stand next to all of this. And to know deeply that there is a possibility of walking another pathway. Knowing that just as our memories and our stories and our reactions arise in the present, so too does the possibility of either reinforcing and solidifying them, feeding them, maintaining suffering, or coming to know through the conscious cultivation of metta what it is to radically change the shape of our mind in the moment. And coming to know that when we radically change the shape of our mind in the moment, 
the shape of our world also changes. When I listened to this this group of people, I was very deeply touched by the the size of their undertaking that they had committed to. Because not only did they share this past of hatred and mistrust, but in choosing to walk the pathways that they did, they were mostly forsaken and judged by their families and their communities and their societies. So the path they chose was, in reality, simultaneously two pathways. One was taking upon themselves this pathway of inner change, changing this very ancient and historical legacy of hatred and reactivity. But the other was the way in which that inner commitment was being translated, as we spoke about this afternoon, into what they committed themselves to do or to embody or to manifest in the world. So they would walk after bulldozers, replanting uprooted olive groves. They would protect children from abuse as they walked to schools. They would block um, the building of settlements. And you could see in this group together that this was really a work in progress. I mean, they would often fall out. They would argue. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like this kind of very passive, you know, loving, friendly group. In fact, it was quite sparky. You know, and you could see how little it took to be sparked. And certainly, to for them to be asked to love each other, I think, was no doubt asking too much. To undo the past was certainly asking too much. But they did share this commitment to stand next to each other. To stand near to each other. And that is the kind of commitment of the heart that metta is. But also there's an intentions. Our intentions to be translated into our thoughts and our words and our actions and our way of being present with all things. When you look and you see how much emphasis in the discourses the Buddha gave to metta and look at it deeply, you really get the sense of when the the Buddha talked about looking, looking into his own mind, just as we do here, looking into his own heart, looking outwardly at the world that he lived in and seeing the destructive power of ill will. The power that ill will has to leech joy from our lives. The power that ill will has to create estrangement and fear and alienation, and to stifle our capacity for integrity and respect and compassion. The Buddha also saw in looking at his own mind the ways in which ill will really only had one outcome, which was constantly to create and to recreate suffering and torment inwardly, in all of his relationships and all of his ways of being in the world. 
The Buddha's teaching, in a way, rests upon some fairly um, simple, um, accessible proposals. But the Buddha put these forward as questions, not as beliefs. He didn't ask people to subscribe to ideologies. He didn't ask people to sign up to belief systems. He encouraged people instead to ask, of course, the very same questions that he found himself asking in his own life. What is it that causes suffering? What is it that causes pain? What is it that causes torment and alienation? And of course, we could produce perhaps a very, very long list of, of what causes all of that. But the Buddha saw that there were three primary tendencies, although they have many nuances, three primary tendencies that keep us entangled in confusion and struggle and despair. That one of them is greed, one of them is ill will, and one of them is delusion. It, it's good it's a short list. It's good it's a short list. <laughs> Easy one to remember, greed, hatred, and delusion. And they're all interwoven. They're not separate tendencies, but they are a tangled knot, we can, I might say, a tangled knot of confusion. One of the primary purposes of cultivating metta, or cultivating an unconditional friendliness, is actually to untangle this knot and to uproot the tendencies towards ill will and aversion. So the Buddha put it, one who actively develops metta mindfully and without limit will see their clinging fade and their bonds become worn thin. I really hearken to that word actively. So what does it mean? Where do we actively cultivate metta? Well, not in the most ideal moments of our life. If you ever notice, it's pretty easy to feel access to metta and friendliness when you're surrounded by lovely people and cute puppies and great views and wonderful weather and you know people who admire you. It's not that hard to feel a lot of friendliness, is it? But where we actively cultivate metta, of course, is in all the moments where ill will and aversion arise. What does it mean for us to cultivate this quality, this relational quality of standing near, not just to big moments of rage, you know, this is not all about metta. What about the little flickers? I mean, how many little flickers have you noticed today, you know, of irritability, of impatience, of frustration, of judgment, of just annoyance, you know. You know, you get the sound of the chainsaw rather than the bird, you know. And, you know, you're just having a great meditation and someone coughs, you know. And, you know, who who took the last of the salad? You know? the, the, all those little moments. If you notice what they're like, what it is like to actually sense how how many of those flickers 
kind of run through our day. And what does it mean to actually stay close to them? Because what do we usually do with them? We usually kind of disconnect or we numb out or we rationalize or we explain or um, we just get lost within, within them or we sort of numb out. Ill will is a strange phrase, isn't it? it? It's, again, one of those kind of awkward phrases that's kind of, uh, you know, sort of hard to pin down in contemporary val- uh, language. There's a lot of gross forms of ill will. Hatred, blame, condemnation, contempt. All the roots of every form of oppression and prejudice and violence. But there's many, many more subtle faces of ill will, of judgment and envy and jealousy and resistance. I think sometimes ill will even manifests as a kind of numbness or fantasy. You know, the the wish to be out of here. The wish to be out of here. If both mindfulness and metta have the isn't cultivating the inclination to stand near to, to stand next to all events and experiences and people, the inclination of your will is exactly the opposite. It's to turn away from, it's to reject, it's to deny, it's to avoid, it's to suppress, to resist, to distance and and to flee. In the Tibetan tradition, there's, there's a real jewel of a teaching, I think, that says, we should not be afraid of the passions that lead us to embrace all sentient beings in the arms of compassion. But we should be afraid of the passions that lead us to forsake any sentient being. And if we think of the passion, the primary passion, that leads us to forsake or to abandon another, It is probably primarily the passion of ill will. Now, cultivating metta in the midst of ill will is an insight practice. It is equally cultivating the understanding of what is it that keeps the toxic tendency of ill will going keeps it alive in our minds and hearts. Certainly in in Buddhist psychology, and I think in Western psychology too, there is an acknowledgement that there is no tendency of heart or mind that has an independent self-existence. That all tendencies, all patterns, rely upon a certain sustenance for their continuation. It is a good question to ask because I think it addresses kind of one of the central tensions in our lives. Because what we do see is that ill will contradicts what I think we would probably all say we most deeply long for in our lives. 
And most of us would acknowledge that our, from our deepest longings, our deepest aspirations, are for safety, for happiness, to feel at ease in the world, to feel at ease and well in our relationships, to be a friend to ourselves. And what we see is that every time that ill will kind of has dominion over our hearts and minds, that those aspirations, those longings are contradicted and in very much squashed. One aspect of ill will that becomes pretty immediately apparent if we can find the willingness to explore this quite difficult emotion is that notice when ill will is present that the voice of me, the voice of self, becomes much louder. The thoughts are far more productive. There's far more story around ill will. The, the sense of self becomes stronger and more, lo- more loud. It's almost like the strength of aversion determines the degree of the strength of the voice that I assume. We hear the story getting bigger. I don't want this. I don't like this. I can't bear this. I can't accept this. And you notice when the voice of selfing becomes stronger with ill will, so does the creation of an other. The other might be a person we really dislike. The other might be an event we find that we just resist. But the other also may live within ourselves. The other that is created may be a part of our body, a chronic pain, a chronic illness. I don't want this. I can't bear this. And we feel that solidity. The other might be an emotion within ourselves that we feel is unacceptable. The other may be thought streams that we find difficult to be with. It is actually so important, I think, to find in ourselves the the gentleness and the kindness and the tenderness, the curiosity about to explore this landscape of ill will in all its forms, rather than following, I think, the all-too-familiar pathways of heaping ill will upon ill will. You know, first we have the experience that is difficult to be with, then we have the aversion towards it, and then we almost have this third layer, this third layer many people become quite expert at, of heap compounding ill will with ill will. I, I shouldn't be so aversive. I shouldn't be so judgmental. I shouldn't be so disdainful. It's just showing what a terrible and unworthy person I am. Now, metta metta teaches us, really, to touch all moments and all experiences with kindness, including the moments of aversion, that they are not exempt from metta, that metta doesn't begin when aversion goes away. 
But in reality, it is the very appearances of ill will, the very appearances of aversion that really ask for metta more than anything else. It might become equally clear to us that when ill will is not present, in those moments when there's a more more calmness, more spaciousness, more kindness, more friendliness, in truth, in the light of all the wholesome and noble qualities that are also part of our fa- the fabric of our hearts and minds, that the sense of self and other becomes so much more quiet. Have you noticed that? That, you know, if you, if you walk outside, you know, and you're kind of gripped by one of those terrible grump states, you know, when everything in the world is wrong, and, and you feel the story getting bigger and bigger and the thoughts faster, you know, and everything becomes a little bit more solid. But do you notice that if you go on the same walk outside and there's a, a, more, a more spacious mind, a more spacious heart, a more, more kindness, more, more calmness, do you notice how the story gets quiet? Much quieter. You don't say, you know, I wonder why I'm so kind. You know, I should, I really, I'm not a kind person. I wonder where that kindness came from, you know. We don't get into that kind of really big building of self and other. This is actually a very significant investigation, just to be aware of in what kind of inner climate does the idea of a separated and fragmented and fragile self arise and thrive? And in what kind of inner climate does the sense of a separated self and an estranged other, including the other we create within ourselves, in what kind of climate does that begin to soften? Does it begin to fall away and calm? Now, so much of the practice of metta is understanding and dispelling the illusion of a separated self and other. Understanding the construction of self and other. And really coming to see, perhaps, that as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Beginning to appreciate our very shared human humanity in which we equally long for kindness, for respect, for care, and perhaps can equally long to find the ways to extinguish the power of ill will. My own sense in meditative practice is that deepening in this path depends upon us learning to be quite tender with all things, kind and tolerant with the people that we judge, that we find intrusive, kind and tolerant with the one who is harsh, with this, who is cold, who is impatient, who is reactive, knowing that in some moment we probably have been all of these ourselves. Learning to bring a quality of tenderness to ourselves knowing that our own moments of harshness and reactivity and feelings of unworthiness, whose tracing, whose beginning is untraceable, learning to touch these moments with metta. Thank you. 
Mary Oliver, there's part of a poem by Mary Oliver, where she she says, And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silent. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. So part of the insight of metta is understanding the conditions that ill will rests upon, knowing that it doesn't arise from a vacuum. And perhaps the primary condition, the most obvious condition, for the arising of any quality of mind that is unskillful is identification, is clinging, is grasping. The identification with ourselves as being a separated, independent self defined by feelings and perceptions and tendency. A defining that goes on through moment to moment every time there's identification with anything in our body, mind, world experience. Identification by nature is to create a definition of contractedness. It's to create a definition of limitation. When we say, I am, you know, I am unworthy, I am angry, I am inadequate, every definition we see arising in our mind is by nature a definition of limitation and a definition of fear. There is a, a curious thing, I think, in human psychology that, that we know somehow intuitively how really very deeply fragile our life is, how very vulnerable we all are to changing and unstable conditions. And it's almost as if we can't bear it. So we try through clinging, we try through identification to make something solid, something that is protected and defended. We make a me, even though we don't always even really like the me that is made. But the limited defined sense of me carries with it this undercurrent of anxiety, the fear of injury, the fear of harm, the fear of loss, the fear of pain, the fear of failure, actually experiences that will be part of all of our lives. And fear is a kind of ill will. It's a kind of aversion. It's almost as if it doesn't occur to us that there might be a freer and a wiser and a kinder way of approaching our intrinsic vulnerability. And that would be to embrace it with kindness and with compassion, with courage, learning to soften and to open. Identification is one of the primary conditions and grounds upon which ill will thrives and grows But the other is craving. These are very closely woven together. 
The Buddha put it that the path of those who cultivate metta is the path of those who learn to be at ease in the midst of all conditions. In the metta discourse, the Buddha encourages contentment as a ground of metta, to find the way to be unburdened. We actually can, if we really look at this sense of craving that can be so pervasive in our life, the sense of wanting, we sense how how clearly it is interwoven with ill will and a kind of aversion. Because craving is an enactment of a belief in insufficiency and fear. It makes us agitated. It leads us to abandon the moment as if this moment does not offer us enough. When we abandon what is, we also actually abandon our capacity for contentment. When we find ourselves driven by fear, what really happens is that we volunteer ourselves to be a hostage of the world of conditions. One of the key threads of metta is to understand that without contentment, we always want to be somewhere else. A better moment, a better body, a better meditation experience, a better mind. Have you found that at all in in yourself, that kind of momentum to be elsewhere, anywhere but here? Contentment is not a kind of bovine contentment, by the way. It's not about cows grazing in fields. It is learning to stand near all things, learning to calm and to release agitation, to be upright rather than leaning forward into the future. We come to know this kind of boundless friendliness of embracing all things and events, the lovely and unlovely, the difficult and the easeful. If there was going to be a mantra of metta, it would be this too, this too. Non-identification, contentment, easefulness, mindfulness, integrity, these are all the conditions we cultivate in which metta thrives and flourishes But so too is courage. It is really not easy to stand near to sorrow or to blame or to pain. It's not easy to be willing to stay close to difficult people and emotions. And Metta is certainly not about being nice or sentimental or condoning the unacceptable. Those are the near enemies of Metta. But it's about courage. It takes a lot of courage to be still in the waves of aversion that arise. It's like swimming against the tide, isn't it? It's so almost, it feels almost counterintuitive that there's something unpleasant, we feel resistance to it, and we want to flee. It feels counterintuitive to find or cultivate that sense of uprightness of staying close to this. This is why the Buddha called it swimming against the tide. Have you noticed how quickly, in the face of the unpleasant, 
even the slightly unpleasant, how quickly we move into judgment, into stories, into avoidance, into behavioral uh, abandonment. It is, I think, we begin to see it's easier to be aversive. It's like than, than to cultivate metta. It, it is almost as if the mind so loves to cling to the pathways it knows. And it knows aversion often far more than it knows metta. This is the place where mindfulness and metta so much go hand in hand. That capacity in the face of aversion or ill will to know how to pause. To have the courage and the uprightness not to abandon, to turn away. Because knowing that when we abandon the moment, we are only reinforcing patterns of ill will. And we are not only abandoning the moment, we are abandoning our own capacity for kindness and for courage and for uprightness. And it's very easy to think that the small moments of aversion don't really matter. But our participation in them, of course, is the building blocks of the much greater waves of aversion and fear. We don't have to love the difficult, but it may be possible not to forsake it and to plant the seeds again and again of the willingness to meet this moment with tenderness. Seeds that, with care and tending, grow into the possibilities of a more boundless friendliness. This is where I think we see so clearly that metta is not so much something we feel. It is something that we do. Cultivating metta, I think, is and has always been a path of awakening, illuminating all the places and moments where ill will in all its forms casts its shadow. It's a path of deeply knowing for ourselves the destructive power of ill will and to know its suffering, creating a world moment to moment of distress and anxiety. And taking care of and responding to ill will with metta is really a manifestation of our dedication to bring suffering to an end. Metta is what aversion asks for, certainly not blame. And its cultivation leads in all the moments of turning away. It it takes a lot of effort to cultivate metta. And yet with time and with practice, it becomes more effortless. And we begin to really sense in ourselves how metta has this taste of freedom. It has a taste of freedom, a taste of happiness. To read you a short story to end. A young man who had just completed his spiritual training and was eagerly intent on becoming a teacher, moved to a new town. He tried to teach, but no one came. The only spiritual interest in the town were the many followers of a wise and well-known rabbi. Frustrated, the young teacher devised a plan to embarrass the old master and gain students for himself. He captured a small bird, 
and one day went to where the master was seated, surrounded by many disciples. Holding the small bird in his hand, he spoke directly to the master. If you are so wise, tell me now, is this bird in my hand alive or is it dead? His plan was this. If the master said the bird was dead, he would open his hand, the bird would fly away, the master would be wrong, and students would come to him. If the master said the bird was alive, he would quickly crush the bird in his hand and open it and say, see, the bird is dead. Again, the master would be wrong, and the young teacher would gain students. So he sat poised in front of the master, demanding an answer. Tell me, if you are so wise, is this bird alive or is it dead? The master looked back at him with great compassion and answered quite simply, Really, my friend, it is up to you. We have just a moment quietly together. (coughs) 